Once Upon a Time Season 5 Episode 15 is over, but we are just getting started here on Once Upon a Recap. Hello, all you magical people out there. My name is Mike Bloom. We're the co-hosts of Once Upon a Recap. Now I'm joined by a man who uh, might want to get through this podcast pretty quickly because he has a date with Cruella and some champagne after this. It's Kurt Clark. Kurt, how you doing? <laughs> it's scotch, Mike. It's not champagne. Let's get real. Is it, is it McCutcheon it's- scotch? They, 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 they didn't uh, give that detail this episode, but I, I can only <laughs> hope if they're including Apollo candy bars at the beginning of this season hopefully there's a smidge of mccutcheon going on in that bar actually it's just lots and lots of gin i mean come on it's cruella that's that's very <laughs> true and i mean you know we saw that we've seen the return of her for the past few episodes obviously liam is going to be our big throwback character of the week but we get a little bit of a surprise appearance at the sorcerer's apprentice here as well which i guess i had sort of forgotten that like oh yeah i guess he did die yeah. maybe i just assumed <laughs> that he had moved on but i guess his unfinished business was to stop henry in his tracks but i want to almost stop us in our tracks because we're, we're gonna get to that storyline much later uh, because the breadth of this episode is really focused on as the title alludes to their brothers jones it is liam stir we're recording this right after the episode on easter sunday here uh very telling on a t- half season that is all about characters that um, may re- revive themselves not after three days after a significantly larger portion of time but still the uh the theme of returning from the dead is definitely there on easter sunday happy easter (laughs) absolutely (laughs) and not many rocks being moved this episode it's more of the (laughs) nautical variety but yeah this episode is pretty much hook focused now that he is back with our heroes and is not is now brooding away uh with his friends instead of brooding away in a dungeon we got to see a little bit more of that Liam and Hook history shaded in a little bit as well, because we have only a few Hook flashback episodes. And this basically, we talked about this before we recorded, in terms of the timeline, it places itself right uh, after the scene that we saw in the end of the last half season, where it turns out that Liam and Hook's father sold them into servitude for this random sailor that turns out to be Captain Silver. And then the next time we see them is when, oh, they're in the Navy and that's when they go to Neverland and the whole Nightshade thing happens right. or Dreamshade, whatever you want to call it. And that's how Liam dies. So this filled in at least a little bit of that history in those years. Right. And, and I've had a, an issue recently with lots of the TV that I've been watching. It seems like really in vogue now. Uh, and I don't mean never going to get it, uh, but it seems really in vogue now to to use flashbacks in TV shows. Like I, It seems like every single... Uh, show that I'm watching is trying to employ flashbacks in some way. Uh, you know, not just once upon a time, but we see it in Walking Dead. We see it in Arrow and Flash. Um, you know, especially flashbacks and Flash can be really, uh, just, you know, <laughs> disconcerting just because of the, the, the saying it out loud. And it's just really, really starting to bug me. And I've begun to wonder with once upon a time, it seems like th- this season, at least, or at least even this half season, I had to question like whether or not all of these flashbacks are necessary or it almost seems like are the writers forcing themselves to include a flashback in every episode. And you know what? I really liked the flashback and we'll talk about it uh, over the course of the podcast. I really liked the flashback from this episode. And I think the reason was is, as you called out, this is a pretty big gap in time where we don't really have a lot of information on the brothers. It ended with them being sold as kids into servitude. And next time we pick up with them, they're in the Navy. So there's, there's a big chunk there of, of story and history that we can cover. I think it's more when we go back to the Enchanted Forest and we look for like a little tiny moment, like a crack of a moment in time to, which was originally the title of Wrinkle in Time, just side note. Um, 
but a little like a little tiny moment that we tried to shoe in and shoehorn an entire flashback in for an entire episode. And I think it's those ones where we feel like it's being shoehorned into a tiny moment versus where we know there's a large gap that I'm much more um, uh, dissatisfied with the use of the flashback. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I thought this was a good use of flashback. I don't think it's necessarily something we have to have required in every episode. Who knows how many books Madeline Angle would have solved if it was called a crack in time. I can only in the in the alternate reality where Isaac the author has completely rewritten the book of our world. Uh, I can only assume that's the reality that we must be living in. I definitely agree with you. I think that with some of our bigger characters, for example, I know one of our listeners said last week that they agreed that of the three episodes so far in this half season, the one last week they agreed with us was their favorite, but they really didn't like the flashback. And I can definitely see that. I probably enjoyed it a little bit more than she did just because I thought there was a little bit of interesting coloring that was going on with Mila's character. And we at least got to find out how, you know, her and Hook had that meet cute that it wasn't just, oh, she fell in among these pirates and ran away and fell in love. But I think there is some diminishing returns going on. And I think, you know, it all comes back to Lost here. Because Edward Kittis and Adam Horowitz are from Lost. They're obviously employing that device. But with Lost, in those first three seasons, even by the middle of the third season, these gimmicks were getting pretty old. I mean, I think the final straw was once we got to Stranger in a Strange Land and we found out the origin of Jack's tattoo. It benefited from having an immediate writer strike hiatus right afterwards. But that was kind of the impetus of the writer saying, let's go back to the drawing board and figure out what we want to do. And I think the way they've been able to kind of sidestep having that happen in season three rather than have it happen in season five was employing things like you know season 3b had the oh everyone's back after going back to the enchanted forest but we don't remember anything you're able to go back during that time period uh we had obviously in this past half season in the beginning we had the oh we're back from camelot and we don't and we don't have our memories so we need to we'll talk about what happened in that time period but once you're kind of left with that stuff, I mean, I remember uh, season 4B as well. Yes, we had Ursula and Maleficent and Cruella to sort of fill in the blanks on their stories. But I remember those uh, those flashbacks were not great as well. So I do agree with you that like when you have a big gap of time, it's like you, if you have like a shading pencil and you need to color things in. If you have a big space to color it, you'll be able to put in all these colors and patterns and really make interesting stories. If you're just shading in a tiny blank portion that's on the timeline of that character, you're not going to be able to do anything that creative since you know what you're getting to at the end of the day. Right. And and it feels almost a little bit uh, forced at times. I I agree. It's like it's like you're talking about like like these these big swatches of color. I'm like, if you can take a paint roller and just like paint something in, like if there's enough space and enough, you know, room to have to do that. And I think you raise a good point. It's like, it's, it's, it's those things where we get new characters and there's new histories and, and huge big swaths of blank space, uh, that, uh, uh, trying not to break out into song, uh, huge big (laughs) swaths of blank space that, that need filled in. That's great. But I think we've kind of almost got that pre original dark curse that, that moment immediately preceding it, uh, where, where Regina and Snow White are enemies, we feel like we've got that pretty much covered. I think it's, it's, it is these flashbacks that cover new ground, like tonight, or like you had said, whether, you know, there was a whole bunch of basically the whole Camelot subplot was filling in the blanks of what happened during the amnesia loss, or, um, you know, anytime we get a, a, a new character introduced and, and getting their history. I love that. It's the ones where we feel like we're really just trying to, you know, I guess I'd shoehorn it in that, that I feel a little bit like, you know what? You spend your time evolving the plot in, in Storybrook or Underbrook. 
Well, luckily, there are two men on this show who do not have a long list of ex-lovers who tell them they're insane. And these are the Brothers Jones. Let's we're talking about flashbacks. Well, I, let's, thought, let's I thought you were talking about you and me. I'm like, <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, I don't I don't want to. I mean, that's definitely true for myself. I don't I don't want to impose any sort of blank statements <laughs> or blank space statements onto your you, Kurt. But that's for another <laughs> conversation. Uh, since we're talking about flashback stuff, let, let's dive right in and talk a little bit about this so yes even though they have aged a little bit to their adult characters we are in a, a place where they're still working on this captain ship now they called him captain silver in the show kurt are we to assume that this is indeed long john silver famous from treasure island and or an assortment of various uh, <laughs> uh seafood restaurants <laughs> uh yeah uh that that was my assumption i mean you don't just arbitrarily name a pirate silver and not expect there to be some sort of uh you know uh, baggage with that uh so yeah i think i think we're to assume when we hear hey this is captain silver uh he is kind of a piratey type uh it's probably safe for us to assume that this is long john silver yeah the only thing that is a little bit of a sticking point for me is that I believe in the book Treasure Island, Long John Silver has a peg leg that got uh, taken off, or at least I'm going by the canon of Muppet Treasure Island, which is my <laughs> main source for the story. Uh, he has been he had been missing a leg, and this guy didn't. Though, of course, they've taken liberties with other literary works before. I'm looking at you, Doctor Frankenstein slash Doctor Wales. So they could have just they could have just said like, oh, this is a fun little Easter egg. Now, Kurt, I, I think I had this correct, but stop me if i'm wrong here so liam is trying to get the two of them off the boat and what he's going to do is try to get basically a form of like a royal pardon from the navy that as long as they can pay their way off the boat they can become a part of the navy is is that what he's trying to do it seems like a little bit of circular logic it's they have to be able to buy their way out of servitude they've saved up enough silver that if they both enlist in the navy they get 10 silver i believe you know each for enlisting and that will then give them enough money to buy out their their quote unquote contract um, but it does seem like a little bit is like, well, I can't really join until I get that. I can't really join the Navy until I get that silver, but I have to sign up for the Navy to get that silver. So I, I think, I think the plan was, well, I'll, I'll, I'll sign us up. We don't, we probably have like three or four days where we actually have to do anything, but by signing up, I'll get that silver and we'll, I'll be able to, to get us free. So I think there's like a little bit of, uh, of, of, of quote unquote wiggle room there, uh, <laughs> to be able to, to kind of handle that monetary exchange. Um, but it does seem a little bit like you're borrowing a little bit of money ahead of time in order to pay off your 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 current uh, contract. And I understand that Liam, I think, wants Killian to be responsible. In this flashback, Killian is uh, very, very self-flagellating, talking about how his brother is so much better than him and how he is a worthless pile of scum. That being said, I mean, what we find out is basically Silver, who did not want to let these guys go, essentially got Killian drunk, had him given to his own vices and essentially gamble away his payment off the boat. So now they had to stay. Uh, couldn't Liam have just as easily said, like, hey, bro, I'll hang on to your silver for you. You just relax the rest of the night just in case anything should happen, because these are pirates. We'll come back. We'll have the silver. We'll get out of here. Yeah. It, and um doesn't this just seem like the 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 best plan? I mean, at least you know, you know Silver had the uh, you know the, the the foresight to. I think it would have been a bad idea from a business perspective to just let both of them go because technically, I think they would 
you think this would be a, a situation where they would both potentially just try to escape. It's like, you know what, just to make sure you come back, I'll hang on to your brother. Um, but you know, he does say sober Jones can go and get the money. Um, and so, you know, apparently, uh, intoxicated Jones is going to stay behind his collateral and lose the rest of the money. <laughs> yeah. And there's definitely a sense here of my brother's keeper, which is a storyline yeah. that ekes a little bit into, uh, the, the main storyline that we're getting here, but we especially get it here where it seems like, Liam is the guy that is, he's in charge. He's the knight in shining armor. He is the good son. Killian is the bad son. But basically, it seems like at this point, or at least what Silver's trying to insinuate is that Killian is basically such a hamper on their family name that Liam basically has to carry the weight for both of them. Yeah, and I was really surprised in the situation where you see this build, you know, that uh, you know Liam comes back with, you know, the contracts and and he's all ready to buy himself out of, uh, buy him and his brother out of their servitude. Uh, and, you know, to, again, to which we find that all the money is pretty much gone. I had thought for sure, I mean, Silver proposes that, well, you, you do have enough to free one of you, so it looks like you're going to be going, you know, cut anchor, leave this dead weight behind, he says. I thought for sure that Liam, for some reason was going to stay on the boat himself, but have kind of free Killian. But he doesn't do that. I thought for sure that he, as the older brother, was was going to almost take this moment to sacrifice, uh, to make some sort of sacrifice where Killian would actually be free and he would stay on in servitude himself. Yeah, I wonder, maybe that could be very similarly echoing to the mantra of the underworld, it seems at this point in time, which is like, okay, one goes, one stays almost, almost like Wonderland yeah. logic. Uh, so maybe that could have happened, but it seems like Liam is basically insisting on the brothers sticking together no matter where they are. And I feel like I agree with you, Kurt. I did really like this flashback sequence because it did shade in a lot of that space in between. It, it did so very interestingly, especially when we get to Liam's darker side and also the fact that Hades is now officially in our flashback canon. But I feel like they hit things a little on the nose this episode, specifically in the flashback. So much so that it seems like every, and I know they do a lot of like poignant lines at the end of these flashback scenes, but it seems like almost every end of the flashback was basically all of them saying like, well, I definitely won't leave you now. I will never leave you. You're the best brother and I'm never going to leave you. It just seemed like they kept paraphrasing that type of line every single time we went to this flashback. Yeah, and not just even the flashback, but I think it even like when we were had the underbook scenes, like this, you know, this bond between Liam and Killian really reformed itself quite quickly, and they they quickly became once again the inseparable brothers Jones. So, um, it, yeah, it, it definitely was a chord that was repeated quite frequently throughout the episode. Yeah, which again, I think you know, I think it's a good theme. I don't know if we need it to be said over and over and over again. I think yeah. there are certain times when the, when I feel like the writers are hand-holding a little bit, which I can understand to a certain extent, given how complicated this plot gets sometimes and how there's a rich character history that we talked about a little while ago that we definitely can call upon and we'll, we'll call upon these characters' histories a couple times throughout this episode. But that being said, I don't know if I need this theme to be stated several times over the course of this, you know, 42-minute episode. I feel like, okay... I get it. They really love each other and they're really protective of each other. I was, I was good on that from like the first minute of this episode. Yeah. I think, I think luckily I think the way that the episode wraps itself up is that we won't necessarily, we won't necessarily be hearing that anymore. Yeah. Well, let's go into the hurricane here. Let's go into the perfect storm as the ship is raging on the sea 
and uh well over you know shouts uh, in the middle of the the windstorm basically everyone realizes that silver is purposely leading the ship into this hurricane to uh get something called the eye of the storm because in the eye of a hurricane there is quiet and also a jewel apparently that the king is very much seeking and so silver's plan is to basically go on a suicide mission in order to get vast bountiful riches yeah it makes you also wonder like we've kind of seen silver as a little bit of a uh you know, a rogue and scoundrel, not necessarily playing by the rules. It makes me wonder why he's so interested in currying favor with the king. It seems like that's something that he would be uh, against, possibly. But no, he yeah, he's he's, he's he's this is something that he's really uh, really trying to you know risk a lot for uh, to 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 find and to achieve and to return. And I am not on the up and up in my you know British colonial history. Uh, and I don't even know if that sort of lines up with the canon that goes on with with the flashbacks and all this stuff going on at this time. But you would think that the pirates in the Navy are almost mortal enemies, at least if the Pirates of the Caribbean films are to be be believed. So I agree with you that, like, I don't know if Silver would think like, OK, I'll return this jewel. Me, a, you know, a pretty notable pirate. I'll return this to the king and I'll get a reward and there'll be no consequences. Me, a hardened criminal will walk into the palace and give away this jewel, get my money and go. I I don't know if that well, would happen. <laughs> see, my knowledge of this time completely comes from like the fourth and fifth games in the Assassin's Creed uh, <laughs> uh, video game series. Uh, so we might be looking here at Silver as more of a privateer than a pirate in terms of basically willing to contract his services out to anybody, uh, whether it be for like the actual Royal Navy uh, for private for private hire. Um and, and so maybe that's kind of what we're looking at is that he's more be more of a privateer than a pirate. And it's not until later on that we see some real true pirates uh, in, in the form of uh, in form of Captain Hook. Were you disappointed then by the lack of ship battles in this episode? No, I was actually relieved by the lack of ship battles. <laughs> or, <laughs> or the whaling, not enough whaling. <laughs> I, I have yet to whale in any of those games and I detested the ship to ship battles. But anyway... <laughs> Yeah, well, well, that's we'll save that for our Assassin's Creed podcast that we'll do at at some point. Uh, so Liam decides in that moment that he is going to call a mutiny, uh, and I'm <laughs> sure first mate Jonathan Penner jumps into the water immediately upon hearing the word mutiny. After that, but it seems like Silver is uh, very easy to acquiesce here, and part of me thought that maybe Silver wanted this to happen on purpose, like maybe it was part of a larger scheme and he wanted to give away power, but no, it just seems like he's super calm under pressure. Easiest mutiny ever. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, I have your sword now. Okay, fine. Tie me up. (laughs) And the way that Silver was kind of like looking back at the guys over his shoulder, like I wasn't sure if he was trying. I thought we were maybe going to get into a situation where he was signaling them to be like, okay, you guys are going to have my back, right? And then suddenly you see, you know, Killian and Liam are surrounded by people with their swords pointed at them. Like, aha, my, my crew has more loyalty than you thought. This is a, you know, a reverse double dog mutiny or something. And, uh, and, but no, it's like, everyone's just like, oh, okay. And then Silver's like, oh, okay. And, and they decide to keep heading into the store, which was the part that confused me the most at that point. Reverse double dog mutiny where you have to stick your tongue to the mast and make sure, <laughs> see if it sticks or not. Exactly. 
so let's get to, I would say, by far the most interesting scene of this flashback sequence. So here Liam is. He's down in the captain's quarters. He's trying to plot a course when who would appear but a very ornately dressed Hades. And it appears that Hades was was doing this stuff and trying to manipulate the people in the overworld even back then as he sort of, first of all, blues himself and makes his presence known. Careful, um, careful. I, I, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna have to use that phrase, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm just too big of an Arrested Development fan not to use that phrase to describe when Hades' hair turns blue. Can we go like all Human Torch and Fantastic Four and be like, flame on! Hades flames on. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's a little, a little racy as well. I feel oh, like okay. we're damned if we do, damned if we don't here, <laughs> but not damned to the underworld, unfortunately. True. Uh, but essentially, the deal is Hades is pretty pissed because basically uh, Liam steered them out of a life uh, near death scenario where he could have had many, many delicious souls coming down to him. So he says, Listen, you give me the vast majority of the souls that I was promised. You just keep your brother and yourself, and I will give you the Eye of the Storm, which. Again, I am I am no geologist here, Kurt, but uh, that looked to me a lot more like a mineral than it did a jewel. Yeah, it kind of had this uh, geody sort of <laughs> look look to it. Um, They're minerals, Marie. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Also, also not a geologist here. Surprise, surprise. Uh, but you know, it was like pretty glowing blue, so it must be magical. It must be important. Yeah, I, well, I don't know if it's magic. I mean, if it's magical, I could only assume it has some sort of properties, and maybe this is Chekhov's mineral that will uh, come into play later and have some sort of property. Because I do agree, it did glow a weird shade of blue, but maybe it just was matching Hades' hair. And I feel like from there, you know, the before this, I know we're going out of order with this episode, but before that, the big question was, what is Liam's big secret? For a while, I thought Liam's big secret was that he had secretly killed Silver and just hadn't told anybody. And that was, you know, he had the, that blood on his hands. But it turns out he had a lot more blood on his hands than I initially anticipated. That, that, your, your, your guess was true, but not sufficient. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I should have taken that guess and multiplied it by like 20, and yes. I would have been correct. Exactly. Yeah, so it pretty much carries out how you would think it would. Uh, Liam decides to keep steering the boat, and he sort of comes up with this BS reason of like, Oh no, if we turn back it now, it would destroy the boat. So we might as well just keep going and cross our fingers. And of course, they wash up on the shore. They are pretty much immediately greeted with a job offer after uh, showing off the jewel. And Killian is super happy saying, I have a second chance at life. Again, very ironic given the setting that we're in right now in the present day. Whereas Liam immediately looks pained right now. And that is a pain he's going to live with for the rest of his life and afterlife. Yeah, I'm... It- I think I would have like maybe later on if I was killing, maybe interrogated that story a little bit more. So it's like I got knocked unconscious and then we found some boards to float on. But where in this time frame did you find this jewel exactly? Because yeah. Yeah, like I, I I I wasn't sure if we were supposed to like I don't think I don't think that I mean there's maybe room for another flashback where we actually see the time between them washing up on shore and you know Liam telling Killian, hey, we're no, we're, we're going to keep on going. Like maybe there was actually a little adventure in there where they actually found the eye of the storm after everybody had died on the ship. But, um, but yeah, it's so just kind of like, I don't, was the eye of the storm on these planks that he found? Um, so that was, that was a question I had. Um, but, uh, you know what? They, they said, so, you know, they didn't want, uh, a reward. They just, well, they did want a reward. They just wanted commissions on one of the ships. Well, what Liam didn't explain is that while he was, 
on the wreckage and Killing was knocked out, a magical fish came up to him and asked him a riddle. And when Liam successfully told the riddle, the fish opened its mouth and there the jewel was. But then the fish turned into an old woman that then asked him another riddle. And when he got that one correct, it turned into a beautiful woman who then turned into a dove and flew away. That's 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 like complicated. And that woman will be the main villain in season 6A. Oh, great. (laughs) So pay attention to that old woman. Uh, Let's jump into our big main Uh, story, our Emma Hook Liam stuff. Do you have one more thing before we do that? Before we do, just a quick note for for the the listeners before they, um, I'm sure some are aching to point this out to us, that Jewel of the Realm, the ship that they were commissioned to, does end up being Hook's uh, pirate ship, the Jolly Roger. Absolutely. Just want to point that out. Not to be confused with Diamond of the Rough, which is uh, Aladdin, just the character of Aladdin. So definitely not a person. It is a ship. But yeah, that's the one that the next time we see them, that's the Navy ship they're on that will eventually, once Liam dies, Hook basically convinces all the naval officers aboard to sort of declare their own form of mutiny. Though I guess it's even easier considering that they just don't go home instead of actually pulling their swords on anyone. And it becomes the Jolly Roger, which has seen... Uh, it changed the course of many hands. I think the last time we officially saw it was in the hands of Blackbeard, maybe? I'm thinking about when uh, Anna and Kristoff got put in that chest and sent back to uh, Storybrooke. That might be the last time we've seen it. Oh, at the, in, end of, in, at the end of 4A? Yeah, I might be completely incorrect in this. I'm sure it was seen in a flashback in like 4B at some point. Actually, I, I know it was because I think that's uh, Ursula stuff. But I think that's the last time like in the chronological timeline we've seen, seen it in the flashback canon. You know what? I'm just going to issue that challenge to our listeners. Let us know the last time we saw the Jolly Roger. Chronologi- chronologically. That, that's your mission at once upon OUAT recapper or UAR recapper uh, or fact checker. Uh, follow that account, by the way. Super awesome super awesome fan out there is checking our facts for us and we absolutely love it uh let's speaking of love let's talk about some love that might be on the rocks and not like the ship is that we just spoke about uh emma is you know trying to make things back to normal she literally reverts all of hook's injuries here and it seems like she's ready to make the relationship go back to normal though hook is i'd say in the right a little bit to say like hey we left things off on kind of a weird note, and even he is still feeling very guilty about the things that he was at least attempting to do. He didn't actually succeed in doing anything once he realized he was the Dark One, but he you know, he helped bring all those Dark Ones aboard and was really going to kind of, you know, nuke Storybrooke in a manner of speaking, and he feels very guilty about that. He points out that, that she, that although they both embraced being the Dark One, she did so for the purposes of love, but he did so for the purpose of revenge. And I think he's, he's really kind of, you know, he went, has gone from, you know, comparing himself to his, his brother to comparing himself almost to Emma. And he's like, he just doesn't, you know, measure up to her. And she's like, you know, let me be the judge of that. <laughs> it's like a little, little too on the nose there, Emma. Uh, but she's like, you know, I don't know if I, you know, even like deserve your uh, compassion at this point. And, and then there's a knock at the door. Yeah. And I would say that with the entrance of Liam as well, I feel like this episode also gave some interesting notes to Colin O'Donoghue's performance. I feel like the way we've kind of settled and kind of settled into hook is that he is very confident. He is brooding, but he is confident, especially, you know, he spent the past year and a half basically chasing after Emma in a variety of capacities. But here we get to see him, you know, play a little bit of the sad puppy dog role and that, 
he's feeling very inferior and it's kind of interesting to see him play the little brother role because again we really have we've only seen a couple of uh liam killian flashbacks so we really don't see it too too much so i thought it was a nice opportunity for him to kind of come out of the typical box that we put hook in to kind of explore new feelings with that character yeah he he's it's it's a, you, i had the same thought that you did in terms of we do see this you know we already see hook feeling kind of down on himself and low in confidence and then along comes this brother that a he hasn't seen in a while b that he absolutely you know worships and respects and then see that he places on such a high pedestal in comparison to himself. That's only going to end up like driving his own feelings about himself downward. And it kind of sets up that roller coaster ride in, in, in hooks self-perception that we have for the rest of the episode. Yeah, absolutely. So they sit around the table and Liam is again, uh, he, he, Liam is lying for a good, like first half of this episode overall. And he seems to make, you know, make everyone believe that, Oh, I don't, I don't know why I'm here either. It seems I have some unfinished business and I'm not even sure about it. Uh, but he decides to help them in their mission, which now Hook is all about revenge, baby. And him and Emma are going to try to take down Hades so that not only can they be freed, but now everyone can be freed. And actually, this brings up something that I, I forgot to bring up from the flashback, Kurt, because I'm going to pat you on the back here. It seems like your Hades theory was validated this episode in that Hades outright said to Liam on the boat, I can't do make you do anything. I don't have any power over you because I can't affect those who are living. Yeah, and he kind of phrased it as like, I have no power like up here, like in the overworld. I think he even uses the phrase overworld. He is really not powerful. And so I, I so the, the, the way that that maybe feeds forward is, you know, is that a reason potentially that he has no power over um, beings that are, uh, you know, uh, natural to the overworld. So again, people who are still alive, potentially in the underworld, he may not be able to have direct power over, but he may be able to influence. So yeah. I think, I think, I think it's still pointing that direction. I'm not a hundred percent convinced um, because again, we did see him be able to suddenly just, you know, flip the switch. And now Emma, Mary Margaret and Regina, sorry, Emmy, Emma, Snow White and Regina, <laughs> uh, their gravestones appeared and suddenly they're apparently, native to the underbrook and apparently I guess that means uh Hades power as well. We haven't really seen how that's played out yet. So I'm not a hundred percent convinced yet, but you're right. That was that was a nice little kind of indication in the right direction. And there's another interesting factor thrown in as well, which we'll talk about this bar scene later on, but Hades points out that he can't go to the sorcerer's mansion even in the underbrook version because that's light magic and he says like he doesn't f- do well with it, but I think it just basically means that like that's basically if he's a vampire, that's the sun almost. Yeah, it's, that's, it's just some it's something that like burns him. It's or metaphorically speaking, it's just something that's like the complete opposite of the magic that he's using. It's his kryptonite. Yeah, exactly. It's his kryptonite. Uh, or I was trying to come up with a Batman comparison, but I guess the only one I can come up with is like dead parents. It's his uh, dead it's, parents. It's, it's, it's his dead parents. They're in that mansion. So I think considering that bol- that Emma is, you know, extremely in possession of light magic being the savior, Regina has now kind of swung into the full hero mode. So she has light magic as well. Who knows? I could definitely see a circumstance where Hook might have some residual magic somehow, Henry. considering he's, you know, he used to be the dark one as well. So I think the light magic is now slowly building against Hades, which is another reason why 
he's getting really, really uh, frightened of them coming together. Yeah, it's um, it. And I think, and we'll get to it. Like, but even at the end of this episode, he used one of the first times that we see Hades, like with some real, like dismay and shock on his face. And so mm-hmm. like, he's getting slowly more and more perturbed as the season progresses. Yeah. And we'll talk about that. I think it might've been that fear might've also been that I believe that might be the first time that Hades has outright seen with his own eyes, somebody being saved. And and I agree. I think that moment, Greg German did a great job of just showing for the first time in, in, you know, four episodes of seeing this guy, we've seen terror on his face. And I feel like the facade is slowly, but surely starting to crack and we'll get a little bit of a Hades flashback almost next episode. I feel like we might get a, an outright Hades origin story later on in the season, but we're slowly finding out more and more about him. We're slowly writing more and more pages of that book. Speaking of book, so Regina's theory last week, this is under Brooke. Therefore, we, we, I have to assume that everything that existed in Storybrooke, there has to be some sort of carbon copy that exists here, which is also the case with the storybook. And the storybook uh, comes into prominence for the first time, I would say, since the end of season four, uh, which, again, I'm very happy with because it really harkens back to the original. The original season yeah. was all about the storybook and connecting it to these characters. So I'm always happy when it comes into the plot. Yeah. And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about it, about um, uh, what well, we heard about in like the, in a couple episodes ago in terms of uh, the the author's quill and it having a copy here and, and Regina's kind of picked up on that as well. I was a little surprised that we hadn't, didn't hear from, um, there's, there's things that have happened in this episode where, where Henry would likely have a strong reason to believe that his beloved storybook would potentially also be here, but it's, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not him that comes up with the idea, but yeah, you know, we, we think that you know, the, uh, we actually get a little bit of a backstory, you know, Liam saying that there was others have tried to overthrow Hades before there was a book that was said to have the power to defeat him. And Emma's, Emma's wondering, you know, if that is indeed the storybook that we were talking about. And yet, like you said, you know, Regina's like, well, uh, it, it's, it's potentially here. And, you know, Mary Margaret even goes to like where she found the book in, she found the book in, in storybook in that box, but it's not there. And I, at this, this whole time, I'm like, yeah, why haven't we remembered that there's this whole mansion on this on this in this city that probably has lots of great magical stuff there that's useful? Well, considering that there are a bunch of sailors down there from the ship that crashed, I can only assume when they heard a mutiny, they thought, "Oh, we all we have to do is draw a sword on him, and then he'll give up, and we can go home." But uh, Hades is a lot more resilient than that. So, yeah, their new plan right now is to search for the book. Uh, in order to find Hades' pages, because in there must be his dead parents, in a manner of speaking, and his weakness, so they can exploit that and get back up to where they're from. But Liam has some choice words for Emma here. He kind of pulls Emma aside and gives the very harsh big brother slash almost like father conversation to Emma of saying, you are not good enough for my brother. And he kind of paints it in a way that I think we actually spoke towards when we first found out that Emma had turned Hook into the Dark One, and that what she did was very selfish uh, to do that. You know, he could have very easily died a hero. Instead, she turned him into this evil one when he's had a, a past evil addiction, <laughs> if you will. And he accuses Emma of even going through these things in the underworld with those selfish motivations as well. Kurt, were you buying a little bit into anything that Liam was saying? Um... <sighs> Not entirely. 
I mean, I, I it's 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 hard to think of Emma doing it for selfish reasons. I mean, she was she was doing it for the the both of them, and she obviously didn't have the chance to like in uh oh to always like interrogate you know Hook and if this was necessarily the right thing to do. But the, the whole time that I'm hearing this and Liam talking like this, I can't help but think in the back of my head that okay, here's another minion of Hades that he just kind of happened to show up at the right time because Hades pointed him this way. So during this entire scene, I'm kind of listening it through the lens of this isn't, this is Liam, but he's kind of saying things that Hades is feeding him. Um, and I think we learn a little bit later that this really isn't the case. Uh, but I, I think, you know, it's, He's going to say, well, you did this already. My opinion is that's in the past. That's in the past. But his point is now, well, he's going to, if he does defeat Hades, he's going to feel like a hero again. So, you know, you know, mission accomplished, but you know what? Take that opportunity to walk away from him and let him go if that happens. And at this point I'm asking myself, okay, what would, if like, what would adults do in this situation? (laughs) Like, you know, at this point, Emma should go talk to hook, uh, explain, the points that Liam has just raised and ask him like, you know, what should we do? Let's, let's actually have a conversation about this very thing that, uh, but, but they don't do that. They, they continue on with their mission. Nothing gets in the way of the mission. No, not very adult behavior here, or at least maybe extreme adult behavior in terms of a lot of passive aggressive lying and looks to each other for the good majority of this episode here. I also did like uh, Liam urging Emma to let it go. Liam, <laughs> that is so a season and a half ago. Yeah. But again, it's, it, when I, I agree, it, it's not adult behavior, but it's also not saying it's immature. It's just, it's, there's just a, a big tendency on this show to not compare notes and to not talk things over. Um, but again, it's a, fictionalized drama and that really rarely happens in in shows and so we wouldn't have any like good juicy stuff if they actually had talked so i'm fine with it that's true though we actually have uh, the exact opposite occur in this next scene where i feel like we have this more often than once upon a time now we just have all the characters come into a room and everyone just sort of reveals the pieces of information that they know about and granted henry does tell a little white lie here in terms of he happened to find the apprentice in granny's diner and we'll talk later at the end We'll parse out the entire Henry storyline later on in the end of this episode. But their new plan is, all right, now we shall go to the Sorcerer's Mansion. And that way, um, you know, we'll get we'll get the book and we'll go from there. But for now, uh, James, since you are not James, not James, David, James's brother. They look, they look a lot alike. That's OK. Yeah, exactly. They get confused for each other often. Uh, I don't know if they've ever gotten that before. But since David's brother is the sheriff down here, they can go into the Underbrook Sheriff Station and hopefully find the key. Because the apprentice tells us later on that basically he had uh, been kind of uh, uh, patted down and got the key taken from him, I guess, when he got into uh, Underbrook Customs. But the plan is, while they're doing that, everyone just sort of acts casual because Hades is always watching. And while uh, while they're going through with their plan, this is when we get our big Liam and Hades scene. And this is where we have a lot of scotch drink. Uh, now, Kurt, before we came on here, you found out that there might be a little bit of a connection in the bar that Liam is tending to. Well, yeah, this is like, obviously, we're, we keep very, you know, we, we keep, you know, close track of all the different places that you can get a drink in 
in uh in Storybrooke. And this was very obviously not Granny's diner, but I believe just like from a quick like check on some some photos online, I believe we're back in the rabbit hole here. I mean, there's no Lacey. Um but uh I I believe Thank that, God. <laughs> I believe this was the uh the rabbit hole, you know, complete with the red red can- uh, candles in red jars and tacky lights kind of strung up. Um so yeah. This, I, believe, I believe this is like the I mean, like the third or fourth time we've been in the rabbit hole in five seasons. It was nice that it made another appearance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I definitely thought the rabbit hole as well, though I had forgotten, you know, what bar uses red Christmas lights. So maybe that might be more the underworld than it does the rabbit hole. It's been a while since I've seen season two. The uh, And when we first saw the rabbit hole, the it was actually white Christmas lights. <laughs> so uh, it is, again, it's taking on kind of that uh, that red undertone of the uh, of Underbrook. So Hades basically is kind of blackmailing Liam here by saying, you need to go with them and destroy the pages that have me on it. And the term destroy is very loose here. Um, I don't know if Hades used the term destroy or if, or if he specifically told Liam, throw the pages down the well because the river will inevitably come back to me. Uh, but he says, if you don't destroy these pages, I'm going to tell everyone your big secret. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. And of course, we cut away then. I think and, I, yeah. and, we, and we know at some point I say, OK, so these flashbacks will be in service of revealing what the secret is. And OK, OK. And again, perfectly fine with the flashback. That, that was good. That did good work there. I appreciate it. Yeah. That we'll find out later that, you know, they Hades happened to outright say what Liam's secret was immediately afterwards because the ship guy, or at least one of the, the main ship guy, overheard them in the bar, and that's how he found out about it. Yeah. So let's get to what I would argue is probably the funniest part of the episode here, which is our sort of I don't want to even want to call it a love triangle, maybe an unwilling love triangle, uh, where so Snow and Charming go to the sheriff's station and they happen to find the key in the top drawer, which, I get, granted, I know this is supposed to be a small main town, but even in Storybrooke, I don't think you should just keep all the important keys in the top, uh, the the unlocked top drawer of your main desk. I don't know. It's 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 handy. Um, yeah. I mean, how so handy that, that that people can walk in there and grab any key whenever they want. I think I think it's more important that the lesson learned here is you keep the door to the sheriff's office locked. I think that's the key. Yes. I think you can you can like have the the, the drawers inside unlocked. Um, but it's just like it's more important controlling the entry and exit to the actual sheriff's office. Absolutely, but without uh, with the entry and exit way unlocked, that means Corella can come in as well, and Corella sort of uh, interrupts snow and charming as they find the key and now david tries to do his best james impression and even though he has never met the guy uh to try to blend in to who james might be which apparently an aspect of james's personality in the underworld is that he has a romance or some sort of mance with cruella (laughs) romance is 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 being generous here it's like let's Let's unwind and drink. And yeah, that's like, that's, like it, that's Netflix and chill for Underbrook. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's grannies and chill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Corella appears and there's I just think, you know, I'm always game for the comedic ploys of mistaken identities. And here it's, it's just really funny to watch Josh Dallas just feel really uncomfortable as Corella is basically sitting on his lap and grinding up against him and making <laughs> him drink champagne. Yeah, it's. um. He, he he's trying to be more enthusiastic, but he just can't really pull it off. Now, definitely, especially since I think Snow got away at this point. But oh, if yeah. she had remained like around the corner in the room, that would have made it even more awkward. Like his wife's like, "Go ahead, honey, 
grind up on the on the uh, you know commit adultery for the sake of finding this key yeah but you know what it's um you know break out the handcuffs and Corella's into the uh it's a little bit of a uh, late bondage uh honestly i i she didn't even need to mention it i automatically would have assumed considering yeah. that she was ready to do things in that police station so i can automatically imagine that there's something going on on there i mean it's got to be 50 shades of black and white with her with considering the colors of her coat yeah the it's you know what the, and the way that the the sheriff station's kind of decked out with all the different torture devices it's probably she feels probably right at home here Absolutely. And, you know, especially when you tell her like, oh, yeah, there's like seven people that have died in this jail cell. Like, I feel like that would have gotten her amped up even further. (laughs) Oh, this is a dark road we're going down. Yeah, let's let's make it. Let's make a U-turn here. Let's go to Granny's. Uh, Emma's Emma-ing a little bit. And by that, I mean, she says, I regret doing something (laughs) where she says, oh, I shouldn't shouldn't have sent my parents out. I'm just noticing that Emma tends to do that a lot, especially of late. Yeah, yeah. She's um. Uh, but you know, she at least she takes the moment to catch up a little bit with Regina and, and and question her about like you know what she thinks of Liam. Yeah, and I actually really again I love the stuff. I feel like they the writers have really grounded Regina as a character here, and Regina makes a great comparison where she says Hook and I are are very much the same in that we both don't you know we both don't have a lot of self worth. We don't believe that we can be the heroes that we can be. And so she says your goal is to not to just tell Hook that he is a hero, that he is worth it, but to make him convince himself that he is worth it. Yeah, the best thing that you can do for him is to help him forgive himself and help him help, help you. you. Help help him help you help him. Help yeah, help, exactly. his, help his brother. Help him. <laughs> um, help uh, the underworld. Exactly. Help the underworld. <laughs> Um, but it, it was, again, yeah, it was, a, it was a nice little, you know, moment had, like, and again, this is just further cementing my, my hopes that in future seasons, we don't suddenly see reverting back to, you know, evil queen Regina and she's the big bad person. And I, I think, and I'm hoping that we're firmly in the world of her kind of being part of team charming and helping out, which interesting note in terms of villains, no gold, what to, you know, at all to speak of this episode, just completely yeah, off cons- the radar. Considering that we ended the last episode with Hades saying, I have a mission for you. I am very, very surprised that Hades... I mean, Hades said, I'm, I have a mission for you that, on, that only you can do. And so if you look at the mission of the hero saying, okay, we're going to go to the mansion, that's a perfect thing to say, okay, I can't do that because light magic are my dead parents. Hey, gold, you can go there. Why don't you be my spy? Go there and destroy the pages yourself. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that he got he got Liam to do it instead of Gold. Um, and you think that if Gold overheard that they were going to the Sorcerer's Mansion, he's got to have like a good strong vibe that there's a lot of power there in terms of magical items. Um, all in one room, of course. Uh, but uh, you think that that's something that he'd want to be in on. Unless maybe because now gold is the biggest dark one to ever dark one. He is also repelled by the light magic as well. So maybe he can't go either. Yeah, but it never really affected him in the overworld. So I just don't necessarily see it affecting him in the underworld. Yeah, it's it's weird. This is again, we've had gold, no gold, gold, no gold. So I I don't know exactly what's been going on with this guy, whether he has like a a green room that he that gold just sort of goes to while the other characters are doing things for the episode. But it is strange, especially after his big episode last week. And now he's really being tied into the plot as Hades main servant. But let's go to the mansion, uh, which we haven't seen in, in quite a while since we were so Camelot centric last time. 
but it's quite dusty and since the furniture is covered in sheets i mean the loft and emma's house also had the furniture covered in sheets and that's because they had not died yet and we assume that once they died they would go there so kurt does that mean since the mansion it technically belongs to merlin even though merlin never lived there does that mean that Merlin might not actually be dead, or at least he's not in the underworld? Oh, it could possibly be. I'm not sure if there's someplace more, whatever, if there was kind of a, well, or he didn't have unfinished business. Um, yeah. The, unless, unless there was kind of a, a more, uh, are the, is there a Camelotian area to uh, Underbrook? In term, maybe he would feel more at home there um, in terms of like the probably the fake Renaissance fair type castle that was probably built by the Camelotians when they came to Storybrooke. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely uh, cobwebby in terms of uh, upkeep. Uh, but you raise a good point. Yeah, it's very similar to how Emma's house uh, looked and how Shay Charming looked. Um, so yeah, I'm not, not sure what this, stands to, what this means. I think it's... It, there's there's such a long list of potential people that we could run into here that it's just I'm no longer kind of like writing off that we're gonna like see or not see anybody at this point. Yeah, I completely not to spoil too much about our talk about the apprentice later, but I totally again written off <laughs> pun intended, I guess, there, that he would be down there. Yeah. But seeing him down there now sort of opens up a little bit of possibilities in terms of like, well, theoretically now we can say any character from the past will be down there and they'll just have some form of unfinished business in the form of, I have to tell you something. Yeah. Like I'm expecting, like I started going through my head, like, are we going to see uh, Jefferson, the Manhattan down here? Or, you know, who, 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 who else could we potentially run into? Like, again, you know, I, I'm still holding out for Gus, the mechanic. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it really could be anybody. Uh, and then they will be, you know, potentially have their unfinished business taken care of within the next two episodes. So Liam happens to find the box that contains the book under some sort of museum-esque casing, and he's able to tear the pages away. And while he does that, uh, Cruella continues to romance Charming, and he finally decides to give it up, and it turns out that Cruella knew the entire time. Which of course again, she did. Of course I she thought Cruella, Cruella has to be there. I feel like I, I do enjoy Zelina, but if I had the choice between having Zelina or Cruella become like a main character, I take Cruella every day of the week. I agree. Um, and yeah, it's perfect like the, that she knew this whole time. But, but I think, yeah, but also the nice thing about her knowing is like, it does raise a question of how did you know? And she, she talks about how damaged James is. And this leads into this whole kind of, I think this thing that we're not going to get completely away from in this episode but this idea of how um, that James is indirectly responsible, David is indirectly responsible for how angry and damaged James is because, you know, they're twins and David's and James's mom chose one of them to stay with her and wanted to go to live with the king. And, and she actually, you know, by choosing David to stay with her, it actually created some sort of, you know, uh, resentment and, and little, uh, something, something kind of festering inside of, of, of James this whole time. And I, I don't think it's fair to say that it's David's fault that had, had that happened. Like, was he the more adorable baby? Like that's still not his fault. Uh, but it, it was something that I guess is, 
uh, something he hadn't considered before. And I am kind of hoping through the magic of split screen that we'll see a David and James confrontation because, yeah, they've never really met each other. Will that be our parent trap reference? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> they'll meet at camp. They'll find out that there's they have the same birthday um, or the it takes two reference, if you will. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting parallel here between James and David and Killian and Liam, but it's almost inverted in that Killian is like has a hero worship of Liam, whereas James, on the other hand, is very jealous and almost displaces a lot of anger on David. He doesn't exactly admire him as much as he admires slash hates him. And on paper, you would say like, okay, his logic makes no sense. But I mean, if you look at in the realm of psychology here, I feel like James is sort of displacing his general anger towards his mother onto David because David, while he didn't outright make the decision, represents kind of what could have been and the fact that he was given away at such a young age and how I am actually glad that they brought up how traumatizing that could be and how there are a lot of these fairy tale conventions that can have actual psychological <laughs> ramifications later in life when you think about it. Yeah. And not just, I think the, you know, displacing anger towards his mother, but like, un, but you know, almost should be like displacing anger towards the father for like, and even like being that situation, even arising in the first place of there having to be this split up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the heroes commiserate and they unfortunately realize that all the Hades pages of the book have been ripped out and Regina actually kind of does the fact checkers job a little bit for her for her here and brings up the fact that she did the exact same thing in season one. She ripped pages out of the book to uh, have Henry not read the fact that she was the evil queen once upon a time. And so Liam, again, is uh, steering in the curve a little bit too much, maybe giving too good of a performance by saying, like, I'm going to I'm going to find these pages. Whoever's going to do this will pay. And everyone just sort of says, OK, there's there's something going on with this guy. Like maybe they fell out of the book. Maybe they fell out of the book. OK, better story next time. Liam. <laughs> yeah. Or you could just say, like, hey, uh, I heard about this guy, Mr. Gold. Maybe he took the pages. Let's go find him. You know, even saying like, well, if they got torn out, you know, we haven't, you know, whoever it, it could have happened recently. Maybe the person, you know, stashed them in the house for later. Let's let's continue looking. Um, I'll check outside by the well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no, I'll start. Let me look outside. It might have blown out the window by that well. We don't want those pages to fall in there. So I'll let me check it out. Nobody, you guys, you guys hang out. <laughs> you've, you've, you've sweated a lot walking around this house here. Why don't you sit down? Take a rest. I know this place. I'll take care of it. Yeah, because yeah, if they go into that well, they'll be destroyed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Emma tries to tell Hook here, hey, look, something's going on with your brother. And we saw a little bit of her old superpower kick in and that she says, listen, I know yeah. the guy's lying, but Hook is not going to believe it. He is, again, in too much of hero worship mode at this point to even fathom the idea that his brother is lying to him about anything. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like that, you know, they all kind of uh, end up even like meeting down by the well. Um, but, you know, before that, he's like, you know, my brother won't lie. Um, and it's like, well, maybe there is stuff about him that you don't know. Maybe he does have unfinished business down here. I mean, which which is the logical route to go. Every dead person they've found, uh, everybody who didn't come with them uh, has some sort of unfinished business. So it, it logically speaking, he has to have some unfinished business. So. 
let's let's figure out what that is. Yeah, and Hooks. I think Hookson did still in denial yes. about that. I don't. I don't think he wants to believe at all that the person that he admires most in this world has unfinished business to deal with. And he, I think he again displaces this anger almost onto Hades, saying like, "Well, maybe Hades has something to deal with this." Clearly, uh, you know, Liam was a perfect guy. Clearly, he is not. As he goes out to the well and throws pages in just in time for Emma to come around, um, and. Emma basically try. First of all, she brings up Chekhov's ring, which we talked about a little bit. Killian had given uh, the ring to Emma. We had theorized back in the day that maybe it was the father that gave Killian the ring, uh, though it turned out not to be that. It turns out that Liam gave it to him. It is his lucky ring, and she pointed that out to say, hey, to kind of guilt him into saying, like, hey, your brother really admires you. Why are you lying so much? Yep, I was like, wondering. So the superpowers are a little bit back, or are these not superpowers, but just powers of observation? Like maybe she actually, you know, saw him actually dumping the pages in the well as she was walking up. But yeah, uh, well, no, because she actually says that he's got the pages. Like Hook walks up and asks, you know, what's going on here, and he's like, he's got the pages. Show us your hands. But you know, I thought in a moment that Liam was going to be like, ah, see my hands, nothing here. But Hook, Hook even throws the need for that to windows. Like, you know, it's not necessary. If you, you think of my brother as a villain, and I, and I think it's, it's an interesting logic here. It's that Hook thinks Emma wants him to believe Liam is a villain because if he does, then he'll feel like less of a villain and therefore will feel himself a little bit better about himself. And I'm not sure if I completely buy that logic. <laughs> Yeah, it's not. I, 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 you know, Emma loves Hook, but I don't think she would want to turn this into a big self-esteem exercise. Just <laughs> like, see, Hook, you really are worth it because your brother's a dirty liar. Um, I think he did a little bit of a step too far there. And I mean, Hook is definitely a little short-sighted here as well. And again, saying, "Oh, Liam, don't even worry about showing your hands because I know she's lying." And the he, he's definitely fueled a little bit here when he basically dresses down Emma and says, "Look." Uh, I'm again, I'm not worth you. You know, you're not, you don't need to commiserate with scum like me. I'm not coming with you back to Storybrooke. I'm here, which I don't think anyone watching actually believes he would want to go through with that. Um, but as soon as Emma walks away, immediate egg on his face as Hook realizes, Oh, wait, Liam, what's on your hands? Oh, wait, it is ink. Why are you lying to me? But uh, Liam doesn't need to say anything as the big posse of men that Liam inadvert- er, killed in a way by staring that ship into that hurricane now appear. Yeah. And they all have unfinished business. <laughs> yep. And their unfinished business is kicking his ass. Yeah. It's, um, and, and this is, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, some of their unfinished business probably is very much firmly planted in the revenge side of things. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it, there's there's a lot of exp- explaining that has to happen here. I mean, they're still kind of hanging around the the, the mansion. Or um, well, they go from the mansion. They kind of get you know the bags put on their heads and, and kidnapped. And uh, but yeah, the, during before that all happens, the sailors and I think Silver's with them uh, reveal you know basically everything that happened. That one of them was eavesdropping on the conversation that Hades had with with Liam uh, on the on the well the privateer ship. We'll just call it. And basically reveals the whole, all their deaths are in Liam's hands. And this is the first time that Killian is hearing of this. And off we go to the sorting pit. Yay. 
Yay! Though it seems like the pirates, again, in their very rogue way, are going to sort of form their own kangaroo court here and basically uh, determine their own hearing where they're making the brothers basically walk the plank and metaphorically and physically speaking, uh, go to hell. And, you know, we talked about bars, both the one that Liam works at and the ones that Hook has set too high for himself here. It's really pointed out here where Hook actually vocalizes, like, I initially thought that I was just so bad of a person that I can never reach that bar. But I realized that Liam set that bar too high for me. And I thought that was a nice little realization on his part. And again, I don't think he thinks he's the cock of the walk, but it at least is a nice little boost in his direction. Yeah, it's... I, it, I, I thought it, I, I did enjoy kind of the uh, how this very became kind of almost like a, a nautical uh, uh, allegory here in terms of uh, the whole that we've definitely seen this, you know, walking out above the the sorting pit before, but kind of comparing it to, uh, you know, walking the plank. And I think the the kind of the jury of your peers in terms of your 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 former uh, pirate crew was was really kind of, this, this is a really kind of neat scene but it did it did give uh liam a, a couple chances to redeem himself yeah so hades appears and is obviously very ticked off that a sort of remedial execution is going on without him and silver seems to just sort of slip and fall and he i guess is sent to hell so are we to believe that one of the rules of the sorting pit is basically if you fall off you just get sent to hell I got the impression that Hades kind of had something to to do with like some sort of force pushing him in. Um, but I think, yeah, even if you fall in, if you jump in, if you uh, plunge in, whether it's by choice or by force, uh, you're getting you're getting sorted. I mean, God hope if you're a klutz and you go down there, even if you completely you know, make everything right and finish all your business. And there is Olympus in the background. If you walk there and you trip over a rock, you are, you're, you're just going straight to the other place. Well, no, no, it's you're, 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 you're immediately subjecting yourself to judgment. I mean, if silver had left, had basically led a, a full and worthy life and had properly redeemed himself, I think we would have seen the same thing happen to him. That happens to Liam. Hmm. Uh, yeah, maybe so. I don't know. I think maybe it's just because it was so quick. I didn't really think about that. It just he just happened to fall down when it seemed like, for all intents and purposes, yes, he tried to kidnap them and have them walk the plank. But it's not like it was his moment of judgment. Um, but Hades is there to basically finally get some revenge on Hook for escaping his dungeon. But Liam decides to, you know, after being outed as a liar, he decides to stand up for his brother again. And we get some almost Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon-esque stunt stuff here where Hades blows him over. He flips over and almost falls off the cliff. Luckily, it is not a literal cliffhanger uh, in the TV sense of the word as Hook ends up forgiving Liam as they're hanging there. But Liam says he has to forgive himself. And in order to do so, he has to make amends in only one way possible. And he, as he urges Emma to do, lets it go. Uh, and initially, you think that this is such a noble sacrifice. It's unfortunate that he is going down, down, down. But it turns out that he is going up, up, up. Yeah, the, he falls into the flames, but then it kind of fills with fog and this this rowboat kind of appears. I, I think we first saw the the ocean blue appear in the distance, kind of where the uh, your next reward lies. And then 
after that appeared, we saw the rowboat rise and Liam's kind of standing triumphantly in it. Um, he, he had been sorted and he's moving on to better pastures. Absolutely. And apparently all the other guys are too, which I was, I, I can understand it's tying up a knot a little bit, but I can't assume that all these guys are, that was the only piece of unfinished business that these guys had. I mean, if some of them had like families back home or what if they all, all, all have their own little complicated, sordid family histories that if this is the one thing that's really keeping them there, that's a little shallow. Yeah. Um, and I didn't necessarily, I, I'm going back and forth in this till I didn't necessarily buy for me, that Liam had earned redemption. <laughs> um, yeah, considering he killed a good amount of men. Right. <laughs> just and, to protect him and his brother. And I, I get it, but I do think this was like... I also... I, I like the idea of like people you know, getting redemption and this whole concept of the sorting pit, but if it's going to be people offering their to offering to sacrifice themselves in lieu of their loved ones, which we've seen at this point with both him and King Henry in the first episode of this story arc. I don't know if I want to see this trope happen over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I guess him standing up for Hades and Sack choosing to sacrifice himself, uh, not just to him, but also to Silver and the crew before Hades appeared. And maybe that was supposedly enough, but I think I might've wanted a little bit more. Um, but it's funny when he, when he does kind of appear uh, in getting his, his his just reward he getting you know, getting to sail into the ocean blue um you know Hades really looks you know ticked off like this is not the way this was meant that this was meant to end in Hades' eyes yeah absolutely well considering that again i think this is the first time he has visually been there to see his work be undone to see a soul leave his place in the way that he doesn't want them to go and i think now that he's actually seen it happen it becomes even more of a danger i will admit that you know despite the difficulties that you might have with the general concept of liam's sacrifice i did enjoy the brother saying goodbye for the yes. last time because you sort of realize like okay now they really are saying goodbye for the last time. And there's definitely a lot more of a settling feeling than it was the last time they parted, which was, you know, Liam dying in Killian's arms. Yeah. I kept waiting for Killian to ask Liam where the, where the missing pages were though. I was like, ask him, ask him. Um, Cause I think and part of me was thinking that they could still be sacrificed, like uh, or, uh, that sacrifice could still be rescued uh, from the well. I was like, make sure you ask Liam where the pages are. Um, but he never did. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, if that if if these are true pages from a book and they are thrown into a water filled well, very good chance that they're completely ruined and illegible. Absolutely. Though, you know, August was able to write pages and kind of do his own little book publishing service to weave them. And maybe the heroes are going to be able to utilize that with Henry's writing ability to write just completely new pages and sew them in as well. Yeah, yeah true, true. But I think, but I was thinking more in terms of... Um, if there was some sort of clue or information in the missing pages that they needed, I was really hoping that they could be uh, uh, tracked down and taken. Yeah, I could definitely see that. But though I think, you know, Huck had other stuff to t- concentrate on, like the fact that this will most definitely be the last time he sees his brother until Hook presumably does die and hopefully ascends to the after the positive afterlife. And him and Emma make up, which is great. The Captain Swan fans are happy after being very uh, distraught for about you know 15 minutes of this but before we jump into the ending let's go back to the first scene of this episode because there's a lot of stuff to mind there um corella i guess decided to pick up henry and said okay we're doing this now and they're speeding through and 
Uh, basically, since Henry is the author, we'd assume that, oh, if he's looking for a pen, he has to see some sign of it somewhere. And he spies this little, like, ball of light in the woods. <laughs> and so the two of them head off there. Henry sort of breaks off on his own, and he finds the apprentice. So the big question is, was the apprentice causing that sort of distraction to lead Henry out there? Or was Henry actually following some sort of signal and the apprentice just happened to appear there to find him? Here's the thing is like, there was nothing out there that Henry could have found. I, I think that maybe the, the light was signaling the presence of the apprentice and that's what Henry clued into because the quill wasn't out there. So like the only thing no. that it could have been a, a signal for was either that's where the apprentice was and Henry found him or that's where the apprentice wanted Henry to go and kind of drew him there and then met him there. Uh, we, we, we hear that, you know, the apprentice isn't a huge fan of what Henry has planned. Uh, we later learn that, you know, the high potential that, you know, the apprentice wanted him to figure out the right thing to do for himself. Um, so maybe this was sort of intervention so that if Henry did find the quill for himself, the apprentice wanted to make sure that he let Henry know what the consequences would be uh, and what the right choice, quote unquote, would be. So I'm not really sure which which kind of way it ended up. My, my, I'm a little bit more drawn to uh, the apprentice sense that Henry was looking for for something. He caused this signal there that it would draw Henry there and then he could have a chat with him. I could definitely see that because like you said, there's nothing out there. The apprentice is going to say, hey, the thing that you want, your princess is in another castle. Exactly. And by castle, I mean mansion on the end of the hill. So yeah, I, I think it must have been just been a sort of distraction technique to get him alone. Though the apprentice, for his part, he's showing a little bit of shades of Liam here where he says, you know, I'll admit I sort of selectively lied to you. Because once Henry found out he was the author, I think he asked the apprentice, from what I remember, hey, can I use the book to bring back my dad? And the apprentice said, oh, no, you can't bring back dead people. And I think what the apprentice admitted here was that it's a sort of a combination of now that you're in the underworld, you can sort of change the rules and can bring back dead people. But also, I sort of lied to you a little bit about it because I didn't want you abusing that power for the worse. Right. I, I, I think, though, it's it's unfair for the apprentice to paint himself as a, a liar in this case. He said that, yeah, it's true that in the world that you live in, that we were in at the time, and you had no reason to believe you were going to be going to the under, underworld, in up there in the normal waking world, Yes, you cannot use it to bring people back from the dead, you know, but, you know, how was the apprentice to know? Maybe he did know. Who knows? But how was the apprentice to know that Henry would make his way to, to the underworld and would be looking for the quill there? Because that would also then assume that he knew that the quill would be broken and would appear there. So I, I, I wouldn't I would go a little bit light on comparing the apprentice to Liam in terms of of shadiness. I think he was he was being uh, a little bit more hard on himself than he needed to be by saying that he kind of didn't really tell the whole truth. I'd say he told like 99.9% of the truth. And the 0.1% that wasn't the truth was like for an off, off, off case that he probably couldn't even foreseen have happening. Well, who knows? I mean, this storybook storybook brings up a, a good question about how much to a certain extent are these people's stories written out? And that was Regina's and the Queens of Darkness's big motivation in the last, you know, and at this time last year was, we want to make the author change our stories if that's possible. And that, I feel like that's something that's always been talked about. So you have to wonder to a certain extent, you know, even in this episode, we're going to see scenes from the show are happening in the book as well. So is it possible that the apprentice in his omniscience 
knew what was going to happen and was trying to kind of steer Henry in a certain direction, knowing he would eventually end up down here. And the other thing is, like, the Once Upon a Time book wasn't destroyed, was it? I don't believe so, So So it's like the quill, if it had never been destroyed, could still have had a version of it down here. Correct? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. I don't don't, don't (laughs) think it's a case of, like, if one thing is destroyed up there... It's it's equivalent right. down here is is broken. I think it's right. just maybe but, when and we don't know about the creation of the underworld, but I feel like when both were created, they were just created with the same. You know, it's like you know when you go into when certain uh, apartment com- complexes come with like the same set of utilities that come. Uh, you have a toaster, you have a a few sets of dishes that come in every apartment. And it just so happens if you break a dish in one apartment, that doesn't mean you have to break right. a dish in the, and another one that's across the hall. It just happens that they all started out with the same form of equipment. But, but Cruella's argument was that because you broke the pen in the, in the overworld, it appeared in the underworld. And my point is that, well, even if Henry hadn't broken the pen in the overworld, there's still a very good chance it would have appeared in the underworld. So, yeah, so this brings up a good point as well, because Cruella did all this talking about how the pen was a living entity. And we had been under the assumption that this living entity was now a person or some sort of being and was residing in the underworld. But it seems more like this episode that it just means that, oh, the now the pen's down here as well. And you have to find that pen. Now, is it is it that or is it that there's an Underbrook pen and also there's this living being that's the pen from Storybrooke as well that's walking around. Now, I never thought that there was, um, I think I think you and I had different opinions on that one. I had kind of assumed that what Cruella was saying was that there was kind of this magical energy that was part of the pen and it was so powerful that it almost was acted as if it was like this own like living entity in and of itself. So when you destroyed the pen, there was this like force that was around it that also was snuffed out. And because it had such power around it, it also now appears in the world as a pen. So I had always thought that we'd be looking for a quill and not for a person. Um, I think it would have been really interesting if it had kind of been imbued as a person and maybe that horse that we saw from last week, that's the quill. Um, but it, it's, it would be, I think it would have been interesting if that's the route it had gone. Um, and perhaps, perhaps potentially more interesting than what we ended up seeing. But, you know, we, we do end up, you know, seeing, like you said, the, the quill in quill form. And apparently uh, the ink uh, is also something that manifested itself down here. Yeah. And I'll admit, I, I kind of wanted the search for the pen to be more meaningful. I understand that you want to get it to speed the plot along. But yeah, it was a little bit of a, of a fizzle that once Henry goes into the mansion, he finds it just happens to be in a light fixture. And in a light fixture that was directly behind where Liam was standing when he found the storybook in the uh, box. <laughs> Yeah, I guess maybe every, maybe Liam just is in that library. <laughs> maybe Liam just assumed that the glowing light meant the sorcerer was, I don't know, really into like hippy dippy lava lamp oh. stuff and didn't want to question his artistic choices, so he just moved on. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was glowing until I think I think Henry was like the uh, the cause of, of the glow at that point. But it was it's just funny that like they're searching, they're like obviously splitting up to search what it seems to be at least described as this very large mansion. But the only things they have ever found in this mansion have always been in that one room. <laughs> Let's just tear apart that one row. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, the sorcerer literally put all his eggs in one basket there. And again, another Easter metaphor here. So Henry decides to take the pen and the ink. And I thought for a while this is going to go into the territory of, okay, a few for a few episodes, Henry is going to keep this secret because he's sort of on his own path. He's going to outline to the apprentice earlier on the episode that he's kind of sick of being on the sidelines. He's sick of being the Mary Sue or Henry Sue, if you will. He's sick of being the one that has to be saved and is sort of watching 
his mom become the dark one and his mom's boyfriend kill himself. He wants to be a hero, even though he got that chance at the end of last season. And he really wants to play a part in the main storyline. So he thought saving, you know, hoarding this pen will do it. But as a result, he's gone into what Emma calls full emo teenager mode and is now just sort of brooding in his room as a result. Yeah, there's lots of references to him being in full emo mode and full teenager mode. And and let's uh, it, it's not it's not the Henry from season one. That's that, that's for sure. He would have been well, big, he would have been down there like full of exuberance and getting everybody to believe in themselves. And this is like definitely like the mainstream definition of emo. I feel like if Henry oh, yeah. was truly emo, he'd have like the bang he'd be listening to you know dashboard confessional <laughs> uh he'd be had he'd have really really tight jeans on like he'd be writing poetry so i feel like the, he's not exactly full emo teenager as much as he's just like depressed and silent and we get a very interesting david henry scene here <laughs> well kind of interesting for da- interesting for david <laughs> well interesting i i just say interesting just because we don't usually get this pairing very often. I feel like, you know, we got in, we definitely got in the first couple seasons. I remember David True. teaching Henry how to like sword fight uh, was a big thing. But after a while, I feel like it real that bond really just kind of disappeared. So I was happy that these two characters, at least, I'm I'm always happy when we have Charming and Henry doing things because I'm I think it's awesome that this show is so fem- female centric, but. I feel like it's also kind of to the fault of some of these other male characters, Golden Hook aside, that are sort of, you know, between Henry and Robin Hood and Charming, they don't really do too, too much except for their like one or two story moments. So it was cool to see the two of them at least talk here. And David got his own little therapy session here as well, where he says, you know, I had a horrible day. Uh, You're (laughs) not talking, so I'm just going to talk to you about this. Uh, My brother basically resented me my entire life. Uh, but <laughs> this is somehow a lesson that it means that, oh, you should be lucky that you have a family that would do anything for you, that you can tell that you can tell them anything. I, I really liked Henry's, you know, please don't turn this into a lesson. And David's uh, too late. <laughs> that, was, that was, that was, I, I did like that. That was good. <laughs> okay. I'll leave. And you can just feel even more depressed about the state that our family's in. When I talk to you about how my twin brother just hated, hated me his entire life. And how, you know, your granddad just made out with Cruella DeVille. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm a, I probably shouldn't have told you that part, but uh, look, you're what? You're like 13, right? You had a girlfriend for a short portion of time. You probably saw that in Harold and Maude. You, you know what's going on. <laughs> True. Forgot about Harold and Maude. So yeah, I was very surprised that Henry kind of gave in yeah. so easily here, but I guess David's speech was enough of a pep talk um, where Henry says, no, here's the pen. And again, I don't know why I keep... Uh, getting surprised here because once upon a time in these later seasons are really about revving up these plot moments. But you would think that the whole Henry's hiding a secret from everybody would become something prominent for at least a couple episodes before he reveals the pen. But he reveals everything like not just that I originally wanted to help Cruella to end up helping my mom to how it's like it evolved from that. And then I've now got this new idea. (laughs) Like he, he, he does everything. Yeah, so he's going to be the one who says who lives, who dies, who tells their story, and that answer is Henry. He's going to basically use his powers to figure out exactly, sort of resuscitate the Hades pages, I guess. I don't know how he's going to do that, but I'm sure we'll find it out soon. Yeah, I was, um, I was, I was wondering, because like the, the, I, I actually rewound it to see like what words he used, because the, 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 
the apprentice had warned him, you know, you're not here to change stories. You're here to record stories. And I was like, and the word he uses here when he talks about what he's going to do is he's going to recreate the story of Hades. So I think that's like, I think that's allowable, like in terms of like what the apprentice would give the thumbs up to, um, because it sounds like he's going to like uncover what that story was and then like recreate it. So that it's, you know, is, is tellable again. Uh, I don't, Maybe I, he's going to go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, see, I, I don't necessarily think he's going to make up something new or make up something that's not true. I think it's maybe a little bit of detective work, or maybe there's some magic involved where he's able to unveil, uh, to reveal and unveil what that story was, and then write it down and put it back in the book again. So, like you said, like uh, August had done. Um, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see uh, what that recreation of the story of Hades involves. And I think the the other people or uh, of the other members of Team Charming are like. You know, Hades did go to a lot of trouble to hide his story from us. And I think, you know, that means, you know, we have to, we're probably on the right path. Maybe Henry goes into full, like, Isaac Mendez mode from Heroes, where <laughs> his eyes just turn white and he goes into some sort of trance when the pen hits the paper and he just sort of blindly writes down the story there. I mean, it seems like I can definitely see what you're saying in that it seems like he's sort of sworn off what Isaac was uh, not Isaac, Me- Isaac Mendez, this Isaac from this show right, right. Uh, in terms of, <laughs> in terms of just writing the stories as they are and not trying to change the stories for any person in particular. But I don't know. There's, there's a little bit of a question that needs to be answered there in terms of how exactly, cause I don't think we've really seen an author yet be able to like basically, mm-hmm. you know, control Z a story in terms of undoing it and repasting in the story. So we'll have right. to see, but I feel like, we're talking about the mysteries of Hades. One is sketched in a tiny bit here at the very end. So all rivers lead back to Hades' central lair here. He happens to steep in, he picks up one of the pages, which reveals that Hades has a past with none other than Zelina. So, Kurt, I, I let's not cast any judgment towards the episode <laughs> we're going to see next week, but I would love to know what your initial reaction is to this final twist. Oh no, I'm actually like, you know, I love the wicked witch twist. I love the, and again, not, I don't want to give too much away about what we saw in the previews in case there's anybody who didn't like watch it out there. But you know, the, with the last we saw Zelina, she was sent back to Oz. Um, again, I'm not sure to what extent, uh, if we pursue the, the Hades Zelina storyline, uh, if it's flashback or if it's current time, odds are it's going to be sometime in Oz. And I just would love to learn more about that land and have more experiences there. So I'm actually, uh, with that being my assumption, I'm actually very much looking forward to it and actually liked this little twist. I know we just got done saying that I think Cruella is greater than uh, Zelina, but I have always liked Zelina and I'm really curious about where this actually ends up going. Um, so. I am looking forward to next week. So I would say I'm definitely looking forward to the aspects that we spoke about at the very beginning of this podcast, which is that we don't have a lot of Zelina in Oz, and maybe this will be something that sort of, again, fills in this this wide blank space of a timeline in order to figure out some more stuff about what had been going on in Zelina during that time when she had really become the Wicked Witch of Oz. I mean, that being said, I think you're probably higher on Zelina than I am. I, I I love Rebecca Mater, and I think she does a great job with the character. But I just feel like ever since the end of last season, they've just been kind of trying to shoehorn her into this show. Uh, I would not say she's the siler of the show, but I feel like the writers have a very similar mentality of like, oh, no, we just need to keep bringing her in in certain ways. And I was actually kind of relieved to see her brought away at the end of last season arc because I'm like, okay, she had her time. She had her baby. 
Otherwise, she was just kind of stewing around, not really doing much. Let's send her back to Oz. We'll bring her back in some sort of capacity. And it's been, what, four episodes? And now we're, we're bringing her back. So I'm going to hold my reservations until we see what sort of pro- plot relevance she has. But I don't know. I'd say, you know, I wanted a little bit more of a Zelina hiatus before we brought her back here. Right. I do agree. I think that the front half of season five, the Zelina we got was largely watered down and kind of neutered in terms of her power. I think until like the very end when they returned, uh, uh, when, when they first came to kind of come back and, um, and, and she's taking some power and control. Uh, and I think that that was kind of like the, the classic evils Alina that was, was great to see, but we only got that for like about one episode. So I think I, I think one of the reasons I'm maybe a little bit higher on it than you are is that I'm expecting that whether it's, modern day Zelina or some sort of past Zelina, it's going to be kind of a little bit more classic Zelina than the watered down version that we got in the first part of season five. Yeah, no, no post classic Zelina here. But if you guys out there have any thoughts as to what you might be expecting from Zelina next week, or if you want to know how Henry might have written Hades story going forward, or if, if you have any thoughts as to whether Merlin is actually dead or not, you have a bunch of ways to reach out to us. As always, please leave your comments and questions in the comments section here on postshowrecaps.com. While you're here, please subscribe to our Once Upon a Time only feed if you haven't yet at postshowrecaps.com slash once iTunes. That way you'll get an updated feed of every single Once Upon a Time podcast we have in all of its glory. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I am at a Mike Bloom type. Kurt is at Kurt Clark. But while you're here on Post Show Recaps, check out all the other great stuff we're doing here. Walking Dead is winding down, uh, but Seinfeld, SNL are, are going strong, as always. Better Call Saul is in the back half of a really, really good season and a really, really good coverage of podcasts. Uh, Daredevil is just getting started. Kevin and Josh are going at, the, going at their daily podcast in the big binge season of season two. And they also got together this weekend to talk a little bit about the aforementioned... Uh, Batman versus Superman, uh, Kryptonite versus Dead Parents, and uh, from I haven't listened to it yet, but from what I heard, it was a very lively and uh, maybe a little bit of a polarizing discussion. So those guys are great, always worth listening to, always worth listening to anything going on on post show recaps. I'm willing to throw that blanket statement out there. Speaking of throwing things out there, Kurt, let's throw out a hashtag for our listeners who have made it all the way to the end of this podcast. You know what? It, it's it's a little bit lengthy, uh, but you know it, it's there's still enough char- characters for you to tell us how much that you just love the both of us. Uh, but how about reverse double dog mutiny? Yes, I love it. A Christmas story reference as we're as, you know right after the first week of spring. I cannot think of anything more appropriate. So <laughs> hashtag reverse double dog mutiny. If you made it all the way to the end of this podcast, uh, next time we are going green as we are talking about the Hades and Zelina flashback. As always, thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you're walking through the sorting pit, uh, you should probably be wearing slip-resistant shoes. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>